Okay, 30 years is like uh, Aladdin. 30 years can give you such a crick in the neck. Those of you remember that line. Okay, so let's go on for Dr. Gandhi. Uh, Raj Gandhi is a professor of medicine and infectious diseases at Massachusetts General Hospital and Harvard Medical School. He is the co-director of the Center for AIDS Research there, and he's going to give us an overview of what's new in CROI, what picking up sort of the, the bits and pieces that we won't be talking about in the formal conversations and the presentations today. So Raj, welcome. Well, it's really a pleasure to be here and reconnect with all of you. I hope to get a chance to talk at lunch or during the breaks. Um, what I'm going to do in the next 30 minutes is talk about CROI. Um, and then I'll talk about a little bit of um, data since CROI, um, really, in, especially in the area of, of COVID, which I didn't do it this time, but usually I'll put a, a time and date stamp on all of my slides because COVID is changing so quickly that you have to like say what time uh, it's current as of. So let me go ahead and get started. What I'm going to try to do in the next 30 minutes here, my disclosures, is I'm going to um, uh, summarize data on, and I hope it will come out of this, with summarizing data on treatment with people with HIV who have drug resistance. I think this is a, a key area from CROI. We'll talk about uh, ART during pregnancy and, and antiviral therapy in, in uh, COVID. And these are the topics, the kind of the general categories of the studies that I'm going to review. We'll talk about where we are with our current drugs, there's some new data on pregnancy that I think really is influencing my practice and I think um, has resulted in some guidelines changes, so we'll talk about that. We'll talk about two drugs that are kind of on the horizon and one drug that's come onto the horizon, long-acting ART. We'll talk about a case of cure. We'll talk a bit about PrEP, although Dr. Smith is going to really pick that up this afternoon, and we'll, we'll uh, finish up with some COVID advances. So the current ART studies that I wanted to highlight really um, came um, largely from Africa. The first is a study called VISEND, and the important part of all of the studies, I'm going to present three, are these are studies in people who are failing antiretroviral therapy, and it's asking the question, what is the best second regimen? But it informs our care of our patients. So the VISEND study was done in Zambia. It was almost 1,200, it was a little over 1,200 people. They were all switching from NNRTI-based ART. They had two arms. I want you to focus on arm B. Uh, arm A was a viral load less than 1,000, so suppressed people, but the people, this Part of the study that I found most interesting were in those people who are in arm B with a viral load of over 1,000. So we're essentially failing an NNRTI regimen. They were randomized to what's called TLD, that's tenofovir, lamivudine, dolutegravir, or something that's now been called TAFED, which is the same, except that instead of tenofovir disoproxyl fumarate, TDF, it's tenofovir alafenamide, TAF, or to one of two AZT, 3TC arms with a protease inhibitor. So the important part about this study is in the viral load greater than 1,000. So remember, they were all failing an NNRTI regimen. They don't have resistance data, but one would surmise that a number of these patients had resistance going into the study, because when you're failing an NNRTI regimen, you often have, of course, NNRTI uh, uh, resistance, but often nucleoside resistance. And really, the, the part that I want you to focus on is the, the bottom row on the right. Um, in the group that got dol dolutegravir with either TDF or TAF, high rates of virologic suppression despite the fact that they had failed NNRTIs and probably had nucleoside resistance. The other point, and this is a smaller point but an important one, is if you look at the AZT arm way off to the right, you'll see less good results with AZT, 68% suppression, 
And really this combined with the study I'm about to show you, I think now it says AZT is, is really at an end. Um, so the bottom line from this end is uh, in people with HIV on NNRTI-based regimens with virologic non-suppression, switching them to dolutegravir plus tenofovir 3TC without knowing the resistance results in high rates of suppression. So the second study that is in the same vein is a study called Nadia. This was, I think, one of the highlights of CROI 2021. Uh, was published in the New England Journal um, uh, late last year. But in CROI 2022, we saw the 96-week results. Now we're going to see how sustained the results are. So again, it was done in Sub-Saharan Africa. They all had virologic failure. They all were failing, this time, TDF, 3TC, and an NNRTI. There was a two-by-two two factorial design. They got randomized first to Dodichegavir or Ritonavir-boosted Darunavir. And then within those groups, they got randomized to either TDF3TC, keep, keep it going, they were all on TDF3TC, or switch to AZT3TC. Now that switching to AZT3TC is what the WHO has generally recommended uh, in, in places where you don't have resistance testing. Uh, if you are failing TDF3TC, switch to AZT3TC. So they examined this strategy. These were very advanced patients. More than half had a CD4 count less than 200. More than a quarter had HIV RNAs of over, over 100,000. And remember, they were failing a regimen. A lot of resistance. This time they had resistance testing available. K65R, which is the signature mutation for tenofovir, was present in half. M184V, which confers resistance to 3TC-FTC, 86%. And so as a result, a lot of resistance in this study. So here are kind of the headline results. This is the, the take-home lessons from Nadia. Dolutegavir plus uh, two nucleosides was non-inferior to boosted darunavir plus two nucleosides. Those are those first two kind of light um, uh, blue bars. 90% suppression with dolutegavir plus two nucleosides, 87% suppression at 96 weeks now with two nucleosides plus darunavir. The most important point, though, is even when there was uh, resistance to the nucleosides, these high rates of suppression, 90% plus, was seen. The second lesson from Nadia is in those kind of darker blue bars, continuing TDF3TC was superior to switching to AZT3TC. That's that 92% with uh, TDF3TC versus 85% with AZT3TC. So now you're seeing, despite failing TDF3TC, it's better to continue that same nucleosides then to switch to AZT. There was confirmed virologic rebound um, uh, with more than one resistance mutation in seven individuals. There was about 460 in this trial. All of those individuals did have um, dolutegavir resistance, and then there was a bit of an imbalance. Um, two of those individuals had resistance to dolutegavir in the TDF arm. They both had intermediate resistance, and then five individuals in the AZT arm had dolutegavir resistance, and they had high-level dolutegavir resistance. So we will see how this, this plays out in terms of the resistance, but I think the main lesson, and I'll come back to this in a moment, is high rates of suppression. And then the last study I'll mention is called the 2SD study, this time done in Kenya. And you'll see in a minute why I think this is applicable. All of these are applicable to our thinking. 795 individuals. This time they were on second-line ART with a PI, plus nucleosides. That's fairly common in Africa as um, PI plus two nucleosides. They were all virologically suppressed. They did not have assessment of drug resistance, but they had failed nucleus and uh, an RTI, so probably had resistance. Half of them got dolutegavir plus two nucleosides. Half of them continued their PI plus two nucleosides. And what you're seeing on the bottom right is high rates of virologic suppression in both arms. So despite the fact that they were switching without knowing resistance, 
If they were suppressed on a PI plus two nucleosides, they were very likely to stay suppressed, 90% plus, on dalyotegavir plus two nucleosides. So I, and there was no treatment emergent resistance either to integrase inhibitors or to PIs. So um, these are the lessons I take from these three studies. Dalyotegavir plus tenofovir with either 3TC or FTC suppresses uh, HIV RNA in the majority of people with HIV, even when nucleosides are not anticipated to be active, which is, I think, giving us some a food for thought about how we think about resistance. In treatment experience, patients with viral suppression, if they're on a PI, switching them to dalyotegavir is likely to maintain viral suppression even when you don't know the resistance results. And then lastly, in patients who are virologically suppressed on complicated regimens, switching them to tenofovir, FTC, plus a drug that has a high barrier to resistance. Dalyotegavir and PIs have shown in these studies. Bictegavir is likely, hasn't been shown, but is likely to follow suit since it's similar to dalyotegavir and its barrier. That is likely to maintain suppression even when there's pre-existing nucleoside resistance. Now, I'll pause here and maybe during the question and answer or during the um, uh, um, uh, panel we can come back to this. I've become more comfortable switching people who have, for example, 3TC resistance. I think we now have good um, support for that. I'm becoming a little bit more comfortable switching, although I always individualize this still, despite what I've just said, if they have more, a lot of nucleoside resistance. But I think there's a gradation of nucleoside resistance. And what these studies are showing us is that with a high barrier resistance drug, you're likely to be able to suppress. And so it, um, we can talk about it, I think, and hopefully um, get some interaction around this, this topic um, as we go forward. Okay, a couple of short takes from Croy. Um, the issue of neurocognitive decline is one that is a critically important one. In people with HIV with cognitive impairment, the AIDS clinical trials group asked, if you add to their suppressive regimen either dalyotegavir or you add dalyotegavir plus maraviroc, does that affect neurocognitive um, uh, function? Unfortunately, in this intensification study, there was no effect on neuropsychological performance or on depressive symptoms if you added uh, one or two new drugs to the, to the suppressive regimen. The other um, short take in transgender people, hormone, either estrogen or testosterone therapy, did not affect tenofovir diphosphate concentrations. There have been concerns raised about uh, interactions. So the active part of tenofovir, the diphosphate concentration, was not affected by hormone therapy. And conversely, TDF-FTC did not affect estradiol levels, and the effect on testosterone was minimal and felt to be not clinically significant. And then last, this goes back for a moment to multidrug-resistant HIV. In a person who's failed multi, with um, a multidrug-resistant HIV who has not failed an integrase inhibitor and has uh, darunavir susceptibility, switching to dalyotegavir plus darunavir cobacistat maintained virologic suppression. This was not a gigantic study, about 100 people total, uh, but it seemed to be uh, effective. Okay, let's switch now from um, current therapy to current therapy in pregnancy. And here I want to highlight a study that I think is also changing practice and has changed my thinking about um, what to prescribe during pregnancy. And this is a study called IMPACT, also known as VESTED. This was also done in Africa. Women who were uh, pregnant between the second and third trimester were initiated on ART with either dalyotegavir FTC-TAF, dalyotegavir plus FTC-TDF, or efavirenz FTC-TDF. Now at prior CROIS and, and has been published, the important um, take-home from IMPACT was that adverse pregnancy outcomes were actually less frequent in the dalyotegavir plus FTC-TAF group than in the other two groups. And that adverse outcomes in pregnancy were actually turned out to be li uh, linked to lower maternal weight gain. That is, women who got efavirenz during pregnancy gained less weight than women who got dalyotegavir. And it turns out if you gain 
too little weight during pregnancy, that can have adverse pregnancy outcomes. So, and that um, has been presented before, but what was new from Croy this year is now they looked at the infants of those women who, um, who got uh, ART during pregnancy, and they looked at the infant growth over the course of the next year of life, about 600 infants, and they monitored something that's new to me, but not new to people who do pediatrics, which are Z-scores, uh, length for age, weight for age, weight for length. And with maternal efavirenz FTC-TDF, the infants were significantly smaller, and the rate of something that I am told is, is a, a term is stunting. Efavirenz, um, the infants whose mothers got efavirenz during pregnancy, the rates of stunting was 20%, and that was compared to about 14 to 15% in the dalyotegavir ART. So now we're seeing that um, dalyotegavir during pregnancy um, has uh, better pregnancy outcomes and it appears uh, better um, uh, growth outcomes for the infant. So, uh, and then the last study I'll mention before I um, I'll give you a, a quick guidelines update in this regard is a, a study on dalyotegavir in pregnancy, this time in the US. So people will remember that the Sopamo study done in Botswana raised concerns initially about dalyotegavir and neural tube defects but as time has gone on and more data has accrued, that, that difference has really uh, diminished to the point that it's not statistically significant. That is, there's been reassuring data on dalyotegavir in Botswana. Now, in Botswana, the food is not fortified with folate. In the U.S., it is. So what this study looked at is U.S. Um, uh, uh, women in the U.S. through a market scan claims and a Medicare database. When they looked at commercially insured women who got Periconception early pregnancy dalyotegavir, the rate of neural tube defects was no different. Actually, it was a bit lower than in commercially insured women without HIV. And then among women on Medicaid, um, there was one case of spina bifida among 2,300 women on Medicaid on dalyotegavir, and that, again, was a bit lower than what they saw in women who, who did not have HIV. So bottom line from this U.S. study is no uh, increased risk of neural tube defects demonstrated with periconception dalyotegavir in the U.S. So this is what the DHHS perinatal guidelines did at the very end of 2021. They promoted TAF-FTC and TAF-3TC to one of the preferred regimens during pregnancy, and that was based on a variety of data, but including the, the, the um, impact study that I mentioned. And they left dalyotegavir, which has been a preferred drug for a little over a year now, maybe a bit more, as a preferred integrase inhibitor with raltegavir, along with the protease inhibitors. Um, so th those were the two big changes, or the TAF was the big change in the DHHS guidelines. The DHHS still advises us not to, in general, give bictegavir. There's limited data with bictegavir. They're quite um, clear that we should not be giving cobacistat boost, um, products because there's a PK concern with cobacistat boosted um, uh, combinations. And they also advise against using, at this uh, point in time, deravirine, Postemzavir because of lack of data, and then or also uh, cabotegavir ropivirine. Essentially, the DHHS says avoid two drug regimens during pregnancy uh, because there's just not much data during pregnancy, and they also go on to say with cabotegavir ropivirine, not enough information to, to use it routinely at least. Okay, so now let's um, kind of pivot from a current ART to new ART. And here I'm going to talk first about eslatrovir. Eslatrovir is a drug that's been watched over the last few years. It's a nucleoside RT translocation inhibitor. It's gotten to the point that it's being evaluated in, um, uh, for both treatment and for pre-exposure prophylaxis. For treatment, it's being evaluated um, with deravirine, uh, with daily dosing, and it's also being evaluated with weekly dosing with lenacapavir, a, a capsid inhibitor that we'll talk about. Eslatrovir, because it can be dosed infrequently, is also being evaluated for PrEP, um, 
with monthly dosing as well as an, as la, uh, an implant um, that, that distributes the Islatravir. Late last year, in November or thereabouts, this, this, all of these studies were essentially put on hold because of a dose-dependent lymphopenia that became evident as they got into these larger trials and a decline in CD4 cell count. And some of the participants who got the higher doses of Islatravir, this is dose-dependent, the CD4 decline got as high as 50%. So I think, the, I know the manufacturer is going back trying to figure out exactly what's going on here. This was an unexpected toxicity and, and I think we'll see over the next period of time whether this is a drug that they can figure out the mechanism and figure out a way to move it forward. But right now this is on hold, which is disappointing because I think it had you know, a real potential for a variety of um, treatment and PrEP um, indications. The other drug that was presented at this, year, this year's CROI is a drug called lenacapavir. This is a capsid inhibitor, so a totally novel me uh, mechanism. It has an oral formulation, which has a half-life of about two weeks. It also has a subcutaneous formulation that can last as long as six months. So there's two major studies presented at CROI. One was in treatment-naive individuals. We'll start with that one. It's a little bit complicated, but what they did is in about 180 people, they had four different groups. The comparator group was Bictegavir FTC-TAF, standard therapy. And then there was three lenacapavir groups. The first two lenacapavir groups started off with subcutaneous dosing, and then at week 28, six months or so in, the lenacapavir was paired either with TAF or with Bictegavir. The first six months, lenacapavir was uh, paired with FTC-TAF. Group three was now oral dosing of lenacapavir. Remember I said it, it can be dosed orally. Now they gave this orally throughout the course of about a year. About 50 participants per arm. And again, the shift in the data that's, I think, of interest is at um, week 28 and beyond. So here are the results in the treatment-naive study. And what you're seeing in these colorful bars is essentially all of the groups had fairly high rates of virologic suppression. The Bictegavir FTC-TAF standard therapy is in the green. And then the lenacapavir groups are in those other colors, the, the purple and the two blues. What I take away from this is in the bottom line, in the lenacapavir subcutaneous cohort, that's that every six-month cohort, 88% achieved and maintained virologic suppression out to a year. Um, so that's high, a high rate of virologic suppression. It's not quite as high as what you get with oral Bictegavir FTC-TAF. And there was a little bit of resistance, not a lot, but 1.5%, two out of 157 individuals did develop lenacapavir resistance. You see the mutations there. They think that that was possibly related to non-adherence, both then resuppressed on two nucleosides and an integrase inhibitor. And it was generally well tolerated. Only three people of the 157 or so uh, stopped the drug because of, of injection site reactions, ISRs. I'll, I'll present one other lenacapavir study and, and, and cabotegavir study, and then we'll kind of reflect on long-acting therapy. So this is now the other end of the spectrum with lenacapavir. This now is treatment-experienced people, multidrug-resistant HIV. There was a randomized cohort that started with oral lenacapavir and then shifted to subcutaneous or a placebo group just for 14 days. A lot of these um, third lines, you know, uh, salvage studies start with just 14 days of the new drug uh, versus placebo with, um, with uh, other drugs. And then they'll shift over after 14 days to the new drug with what's called OBR, optimized background regimen. So that's what this design was. There was also a non-randomized cohort. These were the, the bottom line results. I want you to uh, uh, focus on the week 52 results, essentially, at week 52, lenacapavir plus optimized background regimen, that's resistance-tested guided regimen to support the lenacapavir, 83% of people had virologic suppression. 
In the overall cohort, randomized and non-randomized, eight individuals developed lenacapavir resistance. The mutation that was most common is the 66 mutation. Three people resuppressed on other, um, on other regimens. Now this too, unfortunately, has been put on hold, but this time I think, I hope, more temporarily, uh, because of some concerns about the compatibility of lenacapavir with the glass vials, this um, is something hopefully that can be overcome in terms of the, just the biophysical compatibility of the drug with, with, the, with the glass vials. And then the last study I'll mention is a study of a, of a drug that we're beginning to use or are using. I'll be interested during the discussion how many of you are using cabotegravir ropivirine. This is FDA approved as of last year, 2021. This now looked at um, cabotegravir ropivirine instead of dosed every four weeks, now being dosed every eight weeks. Phase three clinical trial, people had to be suppressed either on every four week cabotegravir uh, ropivirine or on oral ART, and then they got randomized to every four weeks or every eight weeks. What you're seeing in the green bars is high rates of virologic suppression with either Q8 week or with Q4 week dosing. The Q8 week dosing was non-inferior to Q4 week. However, when you drill down into the details, there were 13 individuals, this was over 1,000 people, who had confirmed virologic failure. 11 of them were in the uh, Q8-week group. Two of them were in the Q4-week group. That was not statistically significantly different. And there was some resistance seen. 11 of the 13 did develop some resistance. I want to point you towards that uh, bottom right. The risk factors for cabotegravir, ropivirine, um, for confirmed virologic failure, there were three, one, three that I want to emphasize. One is proviral ropivirine resistance-associated mutations. The second is obesity, a BMI over 30. And the third is having a subtype of HIV that's more common in Eastern Europe um, than, is Europe, than in the US, it's called um, subtype A. I would say with this that I would not in general use cabotegravir ropivirine in someone who I know has failed uh, an RTI regimen. I, I think that's an instance, of, and unless there's a you know, compelling reason around adherence. Um, in people who don't have uh, risk factors for um, failure, in those instances, most people do well. So, my takeaway with these long-acting therapies is you can develop resistance. It happens a bit more frequently with all of these, uh, at least with lenacapavir and with cabotegravir ropivirine, a little bit more than with oral daily therapy. But if there's a compelling adherence reason to use an injectable, I think the vast majority of people will do well on them. So that's how I, I think about it. I talk to my patients about, you know, uh, what is their, their, their interest in an injection, I, they all should be suppressed. I'm still not comfortable with giving cabotegravir ropivirine outside of a trial unless they've been suppressed. The longer they've been suppressed, you know, the better in, in general. But that's how I think about these long-acting. I think about it for the individual patient as opposed to for everybody. Okay, I'm gonna now switch gears again. I'm gonna just do one cure uh, case. Uh, this is a case that, of course, made a, a lot of press. Um, I just wanted to go through a little bit of the uh, details around this. This is a middle-aged woman who achieved HIV remission with a, a, what's called a, a, stem, a, a cord blood cell transplant. So this is a bit different than the, the Berlin patient, Timothy Ray Brown, and the London patient. Those uh, men achieved remission with HIV with what's called a stem cell transplant. And I'll say a, a bit about what's different between a cord blood and a stem cell. So this was a middle-aged woman. She was diagnosed uh, with acute HIV in 2013. She was diagnosed with acute myeloid leukemia in 2017. In 2017, she got into remission with standard chemotherapy and then got one of these cord blood transplants. But there's a company that banks these cord bloods and they can genotype them and they found the cord blood um, um, 
that lacked the co-receptor for HIV. It lacked the CCR5 co-receptor for HIV. So they, but what's interesting about cord blood transplants as opposed to stem cell transplants is you can, um, there's less graft versus host disease with them. Um, and also for, for that reason, you can do these transplants with a little bit more of a mismatch. So the mismatch in this case was, um, it was a five out of eight match. So that means it was three out of eight mismatched. The trouble with cord blood transplants and the reason why they're not always used is they take longer to engraft. So if you do a stem cell transplant and grafts in a certain number of days, if you do a cord blood cell transplant, it takes longer. And so this time they augmented to try to bridge the, the individual with peripheral blood mononuclear cells from a relative to aid that engraftment. The woman got standard induction chemotherapy, standard antithymocyte globulin, got standard uh, irradiation. And by day 100, all of her immune cells were chimeric. That means all of the immune cells had come from the cord blood, from the transplant. And she had full remission of her leukemia. About three years after this procedure, she stopped ART and is now a little over 14 months off of ART with no HIV rebound. Uh, they double checked and there's no antiretrovirals in her plasma. And then very intriguingly, and I think um, uh, encouragingly, she's now beginning to lose her HIV specific antibody response. She has undetectable HIV DNA and there's no replication competent latent reservoir. That loss of antibody response essentially tells us that there's no HIV that the immune system is sensing and that she really has cleared HIV. Um, so a really uh, interesting case, not very generalizable as we know, but just um, interesting in terms of an, an alternative uh, kind of way to think about this, this time with cord blood cells. I'm gonna just give a little bit about pre-exposure prophylaxis. I feel rather embarrassed to be talking about this since Dimitri Daskalakis is in the room and Dr. and Dr. Don Smith is going to be speaking, but I'm just gonna give you a, um, an appetizer for what's gonna come this afternoon. So there was two studies that really have um, been, I think will be practice changing. One is the HPTN-083 study, which was published last year. And then the other is the HPTN-084 study, uh, which was published last week. So what's 083? 083 was a study in, of pre-exposure prophylaxis comparing daily oral TDF-FTC to injectable cabotegravir for pre-exposure prophylaxis in men who have sex with men and transgender women. And a couple of years ago at CROI, and then in the New England Journal, you see that the cabotegravir group had a 67% reduction in acquisition of HIV. The HPTN-084 study was published last week. This was done in, um, in cisgender women, uh, in most, in, I think entirely in Sub-Saharan Africa, or mostly in Sub-Saharan Africa. And here there was an 88% reduction with cabotegravir. That red line in the bottom graph is, is oral TDF-FTC. And the blue line, which is really, really, really low, is uh, injectable cabotegravir. So the uh, data from CROI that was new is um, one year follow-up after unblinding in the 083 study. There was a total of 25 incident HIV infections in the cabotegravir arm. Seven of those 25 were in participants that had on-time injections and had adequate cabotegravir concentrations. So that's a very low rate, 0.15 per 100 person years but several of them did have integrated uh, resistance mutations. One of the other take-home lessons from recent studies, at least in 083, and, we, and I think this afternoon they'll discuss this in more detail, is that HIV RNA testing identified infection earlier than did antigen antibody testing, at least in 083. And the, um, the um, implication is that RNA testing would have potentially prevented giving cabotegravir 
to people who had incident um, HIV. So the two big things in the new guidelines from the CDC that I wanted to mention, there are now three options that are FDA approved and CDC recommended for PrEP. The first and the third are for men and women at risk, risk for, uh, through sex, and that's oral daily TDF-FTC or cabotegravir injections every two months. And then TAF-FTC, the third option, is for men and transgender women um, who have sex with men at risk through sex. So those are the three options that we have uh, today. The other things I wanted to mention from the 2021 guidelines are renal monitoring is now recommended with, uh, for daily TDF-FTC or TAF-FTC be done every 12 months if your patient is less than 50 and has a high uh, creatinine clearance over 90. So if you have a young person with a, a very high EGFR, um, it can be every one year. If they're over age 50 or if their uh, creatinine clearance is below 90, then they still recommend every six months. Um, they also recommend that renal monitoring is elective. It is not required with cabotegravir. In terms of HIV testing, and again, I'm sure this will be discussed this afternoon, daily oral prep and cabotegravir, it's recommended that we use antigen antibody testing as well as HIV RNA, and you see a little bit of difference in terms of the schedule, but essentially adding HIV RNA to the HIV testing algorithm. And then last, STI testing is recommended every three to four months um, for MSM and, and transgender women. Okay, so I'm going to finish up in the last minutes, I, in the last minute, um, a minute and 30 seconds on COVID-19 advances. Um, just briefly, the antivirals that I want to talk about uh, work on different stages of SARS-CoV-2. The antibodies, um, a drug that is no longer being used, we'll get to that, citrovimab and other antibodies that target spike work on attachment of the virus. The protease inhibitor, nematrovir ritonavir, works at the SARS-CoV-2 protease uh, level. And then two drugs work at RNA replication, molnupiravir and remdesivir. Both of them work on RNA replication. Monoclonal antibodies have rates of reduction of hospitalization and death of about 80%. Nematrovir ritonavir has a um, rate of reduction of hospitalization and death of close to 90%, and these are both in high-risk individuals. Molnupiravir had a rate, has a rate of reduction of hospitalization and death in high-risk individuals of about 30%. And then remdesivir, in a study that was published late last year, if given early, reduces hospitalization and death in high-risk people by 87%. So what was new from CROI, and I'll be rather brief here, but maybe I'll come back to this um, uh, during the discussion, was a study done in India, uh, largely during their absolutely terrible Delta wave. This was done in adults who were young, uh, age 18 to age 60. They had a symptom duration of less than five days. It was randomized, it was open label, so the patients and the um, clinicians knew what was being given. They got standard dose molnupiravir for five days, plus standard of care, or they got standard of care. And there was about 600 or so people per arm. The primary endpoint was hospitalization, and they enrolled about 1,200 individuals. Now, who was in the study in India? Young people, 35 years, median age. BMI 23. Uh, in the Move Out study, the US, the um, international molnupiravir study that led to its authorization, 75% of, of those individuals had, um, obese, uh, had a high BMI. In, in this study done in India, the BMI was 23. Only 3% had obesity, 0.3% had diabetes. Now, because everyone knew what they were getting, um, ivermectin use was very commonplace in India. 49% in the molnupiravir group got ivermectin. 77% in the standard of care uh, group got ivermectin. So here are the results. 
what you're seeing that hospitalization occurred in 4% or so of the standard of care and 1.5% or so in the Malnupirvir group, that's a 64% reduction. And to my mind, rather surprisingly, the rate of SARS-CoV-2 PCR negativity at day five was quite a bit higher, 77% in the Malnupirvir group than in the standard of care group. This was presented by a, a colleague that is well known to, to many of us, um, Kumar Sami, who works in Chennai. And so I think we wait to see more details. This is um, a little bit more optimistic results than I would have expected with Malnupirvir in this open label study. And I think we'll just have to see as a bit more details come out. I'm gonna mention one ivermectin study because this is new. Um, obviously, ivermectin has been a topic of enormous discussion over the last uh, period of time. This is a placebo-controlled trial done in Brazil that was published in the New England Journal about two weeks ago. It's a study called Together. In this study, participants who have a risk factor for severe COVID, 1,300 individuals, and within seven days of symptom onset, either got placebo or ivermectin for three days. Their primary endpoint was hospitalization or requiring an emergency department observation for six hours or more. And that occurred in about 15% of the ivermectin group and 16% of the placebo group. So not statistically significantly different. There was also no difference in viral clearance. There was no difference in hospitalization, days in the hospital, time to recovery or a death or a symptom score. There are still two studies that are pending results. One is called COVID out. One is an NH study called active six, but the randomized studies to date really have not supported uh, the use of ivermectin. And lastly, what a proud BA2. It's all we're reading about. BA2 has replaced um, BA1 in many parts of the world. These are two different sublineages of Omicron. In the US as of, I think this week, earlier this week, it was 72% of US isolates. The reason why this is relevant is citrovimab, the monoclonal antibody that we've been using, has decreased activity in lab studies against BA2. In one study, it was about a 50-fold reduction. So as of a couple of days ago, citrovimab is no longer authorized in any US region. Beptilovimab is another monoclonal antibody that, at least in laboratory, is active against both BA1 and BA2. There's rather limited clinical data with this. I can mention what it is if people are interested during the Q&A. So the FDA has authorized beptilovimab when alternative treatments are either not available or not clinically appropriate. For example, someone who you can't give nematavir ritonavir to because of drug interactions. An important point is that BA2, because the small molecules, nematavir ritonavir, remdesivir, malnupirvir, they don't target spike, they target other parts of the virus, those are expected to still be active. All right, so here's my summary, a couple of minutes over. In patients with nucleoside resistance, treatment with dolutegravir or darunavir, ritonavir plus tenofovir FTC results in high virologic suppression rates. Dolutegravir plus TAF FTC is now a preferred regimen during pregnancy. In terms of novel drugs, Zlatravir is on hold because of lymphopenia. Lenacapavir is uh, advancing, but there are some recent issues that I hope will be overcome re related to the glass vials. There are new PrEP guidelines, including uh, injectable cabotegravir. There's another case of um, HIV cure, this time in a woman who got cord blood cell transplant and COVID-19 treatment, multiple options, and keep, keep your eye on BA2. So with that, I will thank you for your attention, and I think we have six or seven minutes for a Q&A. sit there and I've got some questions um, real quick uh, hepatitis B um, when starting when stopping 
uh, then Liddy, if you're going to stop that, do you get rebound, and how do you counsel people? So the question has to do with hepatitis B and either someone who's co-infected or someone who has um, mono-infection with hep B and maybe is on PrEP or something like that. We know that hepatitis B, if you just give lamivudine, um, the rate of resistance is probably about 10 to 20% per year, and that's why essentially it's become standard to either use tenofovir, either TAF or TDF, both work, or to use um, uh, TDF, TAF, plus 3TC or FTC. So, um, so the question has to do with when you stop that, how do you cancel patients about rebound? So rebound definitely is a concern in someone who has chronic hepatitis B and then has to stop their TAF for whatever reason or their TDF. Um, in some studies, they're mostly retrospective. It can be up to 10 to 20%, um, uh, both symptomatic and or LFT um, uh, elevations. Honestly, I think I would you know, caution in general people for certainly with HIV not to stop and for PrEP in general not to stop if they have chronic hepatitis B. And if they do need to stop for some reason, just to make sure I counsel them about um, signs and symptoms of hepatitis and, and checking their, their uh, liver enzymes. But yeah. And a couple of these are for... Prep that I think will sort of yeah, postpone. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, were there differences in seen in linocaprevir resistance between the uh, PO and sub-Q groups? So the question is, is was there a difference in oral versus um, subcutaneous linocaprevir in terms of resistance? They didn't appear to be any difference between the two. These um, groups had about 50 people in them per arm, and the number of cases of resistance were pretty small. So I think it's hard to say with certainty whether there's going to turn out to be a difference, but not something that we can see so far. And just with the remaining time, uh, since we're not going to have much other time to talk about COVID, yeah. um, what's your thought about the next couple of months? Uh, obviously, people are leaning towards the second booster, but more in terms of your advice to us and to our you counsel your patients about monitoring for symptoms getting tested, starting treatment. What's your sort of capsule summary of what we can expect and what we should be doing? Um, so let me start with the treatment part and then kind of work my way backwards. So I think for treatment, um, this will vary where, depending on where you are in the country. Right now in Massachusetts, where I am, there's reasonably good supplies of the drugs. So, um, and our cases, of course, like every place has come down a lot. So back in January, we were rationing, essentially, we were tiering um, the, the drugs because we had so many cases in January that not, and we had so little in the matrovirotonavir, so little molnupiravir and so little citrovimab that we were only giving it to the, um, like the most heavily immunosuppressed individuals or then unvaccinated people who were at super high risk uh, or pregnancy, for example. Now we're in a position that we can essentially give it to any high risk individual. Now, one thing that is probably worth mentioning is the whole test to treat um, um, governmental kind of initiative. I think all of the data I showed you, and since we have a little time, I'll stress this now. Um, all of the data I showed you with the antivirals is in um, high-risk individuals. The reason why they do it that way is because if you take a bunch of low-risk individuals, it's very, very hard to show a, an effect because the rate of complications is, by definition, low because you have a low-risk population. So all of those studies for, for citrovimab, for um, uh, the matrovirotonavir for malnupiravir for um, remdesivir, all in high-risk individuals, and, and this is quite important, all in unvaccinated individuals. So we actually don't quite know how to um, translate that into what we should do for breakthrough infections. That being said, if I have a high-risk individual who's vaccinated who has a breakthrough infection, I think it stands to reason that, you know, this seems like a, a good idea to give them that insurance of an antiviral. 
So, um, uh, so that, that's one point that I wanted to make about treatment. I think it's warranted to use for breakthrough. It's certainly warranted to use for um, unvaccinated people who develop COVID. There is a trial going on with nematavir ritonavir. I'm gonna, I, we don't generally use brand names. Paxlovid is the drug, obviously, that, that's the trade name for that one. Um, that is in so-called standard risk individuals. And we don't yet know the full results of that. Standard risk means they don't have a high risk for complications or, and this is important, they're vaccinated. And so we will see um, what, what it does in, in that instance. But yeah, I would definitely prioritize trying to get most people. I was telling at uh, dinner last night, I had someone in his late 70s with heart disease, cardiovascular um, disease who developed symptoms, breakthrough infection. And, and he called me the next day after getting the matrovirotonavir and said, you know, a miracle drug. I mean, how much better he felt. As far as um, where are we going with the, the numbers, I, I think we have to see where we go, not with cases, because I think cases are severely undercounted right now. I think we really have very little idea what's going on in terms of cases. I think we have to watch uh, because of the issue of um, uh, home testing or, or not testing. Um, I think we have to watch this wastewater as a surrogate for what's really going on around the country. And I'll ask you in a second how um, much data you have um, here on wastewater. And then I think we have to watch our hospitalization rates. The worry I have about hospitalization is by the time our hospitals begin to go up, you know, in some ways the cat's getting out of the bag. So, yeah. Yeah. I think, and thank you, Raj. Yeah. Uh, the, I think the, uh, the one of the key take home points for all of us is that we have to remember the biology of, of the infection. The first phase is a viremic phase, and that's in, from day of infection, especially day of symptoms onset, to about four or five days later. That's a critical time if you're going to use an antiviral. Um, and remdesivir is a perfect example, originally approved being used later, like days seven, eight, nine, ten, yeah, marginal effect when it was used in the first three days, boom, you know, 89% prevention in high risk people. So it sort of underscores that. So I think we should all tell ourselves, our patients, our families that monitor, we don't know when this thing's coming back. The BA2 is very infectious. We've seen outbreaks. Um, in Washington, you, some prominent people have just recently gotten infected. And we're all trying to celebrate and go maskless in a lot of places, but the virus doesn't care uh, where we are, or who we're with. If, if it's there, it's gonna try to infect us and just we can monitor and survive and move forward. Just have to be vigilant, test early, test often if you're symptomatic, test positive, call and get uh, prescriptions for these antivirals if you're eligible. Thanks so much. Sure. Okay.